Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. Public ownership has been a topic of interest on Dead Pundit Society for many, many weeks. We've had on a number of guests to talk about these exciting projects to develop innovative political movements and uh, ideas to develop schemes and strategies of public ownership. We've had on the likes of Joe Guinan. Hillary Wainwright several months ago, and many people have talked about the ins and outs of democratic public ownership. And my guest today is outlining these plans and policies and uh, with a great deal of specificity in her capacity as founder and director of We Own It in the UK. Joining me today is Kat Hobbs. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Adam. Great to be here. So as I mentioned in my introduction here, you are part of a really exciting and innovative new cadres, if you will, of thinkers and doers who are working towards solutions to our neoliberal present. In that respect, you have started an organization, a think tank, if you will, a think and do tank, as Joe Guinan likes to say, called We Own It. You are its founder and director. Talk to us a little bit about that project. How long has it been around what was the impetus for its creation? Uh, what are the capacities that you've used to start such uh, such an exciting venture? Something that onlookers here in the United States will be very jealous of and are very resource poor left <laughs> and poorly mm-hmm. connected, I would say, uh, a left sphere that we live in. Everyone has uh, really great ideas. People are really struggling to put them into practice. So how did you do that in your own context? Sure. So my background is in campaigning for better public transport or transit, as I think you call it there. So um, I started out running a a local rail campaign in Bristol, a city in the in the southwest of of England, pushing for a more frequent train service because I didn't have a car. I couldn't get around and I got involved with a local group there and we ran a campaign and we managed to get the council to pay for an extra train on the line. Um, And that kind of got me into public transport campaigning. And then I campaigned nationally. And what I noticed was that we have a a railway in the UK, which is, you know, incredibly expensive. You'll you'll know if any of your listeners have ever traveled in the UK, our rail fares are really outrageous, especially if you just turn up on the day. It's um, it's very, very unaffordable to get around. Um, And also there's not enough capacity. There needs to be much more investment, um, new lines, new stations, more trains. And so it didn't see, it seemed to me as though privatization, which is what happened to our railway between 1994 and 1997, really wasn't helping the situation. So, you know, passengers are suffering. And meanwhile, shareholders of train companies were taking away a profit. Um, so I was kind of wondering, you know, why, why do we have this privatized system? This seems a bit crazy. And I was also campaigning on buses. And again, you know, we've got since Thatcher deregulated and privatized our buses in 1986, you know, we've seen bus fares go up. Many, many communities have lost their bus service. They don't have any kind of service at all. And meanwhile, again, shareholders are, are creaming off dividends. So I was kind of wondering in, in doing that work, you know, why have we got this system where we've got deregulated and or privatized public transport? And I think even in, in, in the US, it's a better situation. I think a lot of your public transit is, in fact, public. Um, and that's not the case here in the UK. And it, and it really doesn't work. 
And then I, uh, in 2010, we had a new government which started to deliver austerity in a big way, cutting back our public services um, and really damaging them and also selling more things off. So we had a government that was privatising our NHS, our National Health Service, um, privatising our Royal Mail, our postal service, um, and pushing our local councils to outsource as much as possible to private companies. So for me, that was a moment where I started to kind of join the dots. And uh, it looked as though privatisation really didn't work, hadn't been working for the past 30 years. Um, It was really unpopular. We know from the polling that public ownership is really popular. And yet the sort of privatisation juggernaut seemed to be, you know, rumbling on um, uh, without much end in sight in a very ideological way. And I wanted to create an organisation that would challenge that and make the case for public ownership and public services that work for people rather than profit. Now, despite that beating that you all have taken in Britain and we took it here in the United States as well, perhaps even worse so in the neoliberal era, despite that neoliberal beatdown that we all faced and are still suffering from, there is nonetheless a very proud legacy of public provision and public services in Britain. It's, uh, most, you know, most infamously, Nye Bevan's National Health Service in the post-war era. Talk to us about that legacy, uh, the kind of energy and the innovation that was sparked in that moment and and what you would like to kind of uh, revivify from from those times. Mm, absolutely. I think I think the NHS is really amazing and I and I kind of speak quite personally here because my uh, my mum and my stepdad have both spent their lives working in the NHS. So I know how hard they work and I know, you know, how hard all of the staff in the NHS work and what it delivers for us which is, you know, not having to worry about our health which is a huge achievement. And so something that we we say in general um, is, you know, actually, when you look at what public services are, they're people coming together to provide collectively for things we all need. They're the best thing that human beings have ever invented. You know, there's something that we should be really, really excited about. And the, the kind of legacy of the welfare state um, in giving us, us that, that safety net, but also that positive universal service that we can all be part of is really, really important. And yet, uh, I, I certainly will not be denigrating the National Health Service, even if, in, even in its current uh, hobbled and somewhat privatized form. Uh, in the, you know, in the United States, healthcare is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, people will know that sad, really shameful fact of of U.S. healthcare across the world. It's something that we hang our heads in shame about when we when we travel and and speak to others. Uh, but we're working to change that with a Medicare for all system and hopefully further nationalization projects in the future. And yet we have to cri- be very critical of the way that this NHS uh, rollout has uh, has been has been undermined in a variety of ways. I've had a number of guests on the program over the past months, from Hillary Wainwright to Leo Panitch to Joe Guinan, most recently. Talk to us about some of the limitations of these top-down bureaucratic nationalization projects. And this is really where you come in because we own it, at least in my, you know, as, as an onlooker, it seems that we own it as doing some really innovative work in changing that top-down bureaucratic form of nationalization. Uh, talk to our, our guests about that and, and the kinds of uh, ways that you're trying to rethink public ownership. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's complicated. I think we need to be really mindful of the fact that the state, the role of the state is really important because, you know, so just to to push back slightly 
on that and then I'll go into you know some of our proposals around you know what what bottom-up democratic accountable public ownership looks like um but I think you know the NHS, for example, is is this huge achievement. We know that mm-hmm. um, until very recently, um, it's it's been one of the most efficient healthcare systems in the world. Um, Absolutely. And and I think there is something about you know there is there is an important role for the state in terms of representing a really broad public. You know, not just the people who use services, not just the people who work in them, but you know future generations, the environment, you know, all of the all of the public that need to be part of that, you know, communities, um, all of that needs to be to be there. Um, and also in delivering, you know, the, the state has a really important role in delivering certain outcomes, you know, outcomes that we want to see as a society, making sure that we have a fair society where we all have access to things that we need, where it's not a postcode lottery. So I think, you know, probably more in the UK than in the US. I, I think I, I was um, in the US recently and I had had the impression that there's, you know, you guys have a lot of scepticism about the state and I understand that. And I and I think there's, you know, there's a lot that needs to be challenged about how the state often operates, but it does have the potential to have that to have that role. And I think that's really, really important. So yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm but, in full agreement, yeah. just to be clear. I'm in full agreement with that. I, I don't mean to be, uh, to project or to, uh, to insinuate otherwise we're, we're big, uh, pro-state socialists here on, on DPS. Uh, I guess looking at more like the contradictions of how do we bulletproof these state nationalization projects so that they're not as vulnerable to these sort of neoliberal onslaughts in the way that the post-war, uh, public services were. Definitely, definitely. And I mean, I just say that because, you know, there's there's a debate here, for example, right now in the Labour Party. Um, you know, there are some people who um, who are more interested in services like water being cooperatively owned than being state owned. So I've actually just written a piece about that because that, you know, that's an important debate. So that's kind of um, top of mind. But, you know, you're absolutely right. We need to bulletproof public ownership. And so we've been doing quite a lot of thinking about you know, how do we make public ownership this time around so wildly successful that it can't be dismantled by any future Margaret Thatcher? And so that means, you know, it needs to be efficient and effective. It needs to be accountable, democratic. It also needs to be innovative. You know, it needs to be green. It needs to help us tackle the climate crisis. And people need to look at, you know, our new publicly owned companies and say, wow, you know, this is this is amazing. This has worked really well. This is something that we're we want to hold on to whatever whatever governments come along in the future. Um, and so we've been thinking about this because, um, in, well, because it's what we do, but in particular because the Labour Party here uh, has just finished consulting on democratic public ownership and they're trying to think through what the model of public ownership would look like in the future. And so we put some ideas forward around that, which is about, you know, making sure that we have citizens, workers and communities um, having a strong voice in public ownership. So, so the model, so the, so the report that we put forward, we've called it "When We Own It: A Model for Public Ownership in the 21st Century," and we've suggested a range of ways that we can make sure that public ownership is really, really successful. Um, so, so one important thing is that we're saying, you know, public services need to be professionally managed by people who know how to do that, but they need to be accountable to. Uh, supervisory boards that have, you know, strong representation from citizens, users of public services, workers and communities and civil society alongside government as the democratic voice of the people. So 
that's a kind of really that's the broad public that I mentioned earlier you know that that it's a it's a really broad set of different interests that we're trying to include there and alongside that we're also suggesting that at the moment the people who use public services don't have the voice that they need so you know workers have trade unions but the people who use public services whether that be you know water energy public transport uh, the Royal Mail, a postal service, or, you know, any other range of public services that we need in our lives, like, you know, parks, libraries, leisure centres, you know, we need to have, we need to have a, a kind of institutional form that will help stand up for us. So if we want to have, you know, real participation in public services, how are we going to make that happen? You know, it's not just going to happen on its own. So we're calling for the creation of a new organisation, which we're calling Participate. Um, and that would be a democratically accountable organisation, a bit like a co-op or a trade union, which users of public services can vote for their representatives. Those representatives will sit directly in boards um, holding the publicly owned ac- companies accountable. Um, and this organisation will also make it really easy for all of us to participate in our public services in a whole range of ways. Now, this is the most fascinating institutional innovation that you're proposing. I first came across this, um, I first came across your work and, and your organization when uh, Joe Guinan brought you to the Democracy Collaborative in Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago. And I, I, I was a little, I was floored by this suggestion. And I'll tell you why. This idea that we need to bring in consumers to to determine the trajectory of our, our public and private services was something that in a really mealy-mouthed and cynical way was wielded by the neoliberal uh, revolution in the late 1970s and 1980s. So what you seem to be suggesting is that we need to um, sort of, again, bulletproof that vulnerability. Because the assumption on the left, on the socialist left, going back even before the Second War, was that labor, that's, that's the role of labor, that we are not only workers, but we're also community members. So when there was an issue of, of public service or community provisions, we should bring the trade unions to the table because they are not only workers, but they are also living in these communities. They have many, many instances, families and spouses who also work and live in those communities. They send their kids to the schools. They use the public services. They drink the water and they, you know, they consume the electricity. And so labor was the, rec- the sole recognized voice of the community, you seem to be suggesting otherwise, and it's a really, uh, it's a really potentially uh, controversial claim. Uh, talk, talk to us more about that and, and where that comes from. Yeah, so I think you know we absolutely want workers and trade unions to be at the table in making decisions, and also you know for all of the the expertise and the experience of workers to be used. You know, frontline workers have huge amounts of knowledge about how services work, how they could be made better. So, you know, that's that's very much part of how we see public services working well in public ownership. But as you say, we we're saying that 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 representation of users isn't enough because I think, you know, when um, when trade unions are at the table, they're thinking about they're thinking about terms and conditions um, of their workers. They're thinking about bargaining negotiations. And that's absolutely legitimate and valid. But it's not it's not quite the same as reflecting the interests of a broad public. And so I think it's really key that we start to to do that and to reflect those interests. You know, even if you then put consumers, which, you know, we don't really like the word, but, you know, users of public services into the mix, you know, they might be thinking about how much, how much the bills are, what kind of service they get. 
Um, but, you know, there's, there's still actually a broader public interest beyond that, you know, in terms of whole communities or future generations and the environment. You know, those are all important constituencies. Um, but I think in terms of, you know, us needing a voice as users of public services, it's a common sense thing, really. And I think we, you know, we don't need to be, um, we, you know, we, we don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater in the sense that, you know, the idea that that people who use services might have something to say about them or might have some kind of important role in deciding what happens, I think is is vital. So, you know, we're not when we're when we're engaging with public services, we're not engaging with them really from a position of consumer choice, but we are we are engaging with them as citizens. And so, you know, there's a there's a number of ways that we might have ideas about how to make those services better. You know, for example, I was I was running in the park the other day um, and it was about 7.30 in the morning and I came across the, uh, the the sort of park attendant guy watering the flowers and he was just next to the gate, but the gate to the park was locked and I wanted to get out. And I said, you know, could you very kindly, you know, unlock the gate so I can leave? I've been trying to get out of this park. Um, and basically he refused because he said the park doesn't open until 8 a.m. That's not the kind of flexibility <laughs> that we need from public servants and there's well. you know there's many many wonderful public servants and they are at the heart of our public services and i'm not you know putting that down for a second but we all know that you know humans in any institution in any organization some of them are great and helpful and some of them can be a bit of a pain when we're engaging with our public services you know things that we need like parks we should be able to have some power in that situation you know, so so of course I can ring up the council. And I said to him, you know, you know, could could you maybe be a bit more flexible? And he said, you know, talk to my boss. And I said, maybe you could talk to him. Um, yeah, so I was yeah. I was a little bit uh, feisty at that time in the morning. But um, <laughs> but uh, you know, if I do ring the council, hopefully they'll be helpful. They're operating under really constrained conditions. You know, funding for public services has been absolutely cut to the bone in this country. It's a real it's a real disaster. You know. People need to be able to to access their local park. Um, that's a, that's a really important thing for communities and for our health um, and for our, our sanity. So, but you know, say the council isn't that helpful. What do I do then? And you know, and that's where we see an organisation like Participate being important because this is an organisation that is set up to represent us. And they could say, well, actually, you know, we we're going to recommend to government that you know there's national standards about parks, for example. So you know everyone should be not more than 10 minutes from a green space and those green spaces should be open at this time in the morning you know these are the kinds of things that could develop um, in creating public services that actually give us the possibility of a really good life and 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 that meet our needs in a collective way that really works for everyone and if we're going to do that we need the voices of people who use public services to be there as well as the voices of workers because often the interests are aligned very often the interests are aligned all of us you know, workers and users, um, the public as a whole, ultimately need strong public services that, to support our society and to support our economy. But, you know, in the short term, these interests can be different. And I think we actually need to be honest about that to make sure we avoid any pitfalls. If you look, um, just another example, if you look at Paris, where they brought water into public ownership in 2010, they've got a whole range of stakeholders involved in their model. So they have workers involved. They also have uh, housing associations, tenants associations, uh, they have a water scientist involved. They're doing amazing work in Paris 
to uh, reduce bills, cut leakage levels, give access to water for homeless people, and they've introduced still and sparkling water fountains all over the city. So they're doing they're doing really pioneering stuff. But there was some disagreement between the unions and others on the board about whether to reduce bills. That's entirely natural and understandable. You know, the decisions have to be made about pricing, decisions have to be made about wages. I think we need all of the different interests in the room and we need to make sure that the outcomes are best for everyone as best as they can be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and surely this would have to be, you know, part and parcel of a larger movement for the, you know, full decommodification of basic services needs and, and so on in society. One of the pitfalls in, say, France would be if, if they uh, – these user networks do achieve this decrease in fees. Now we're stretching that corporate – that corporatist model that the trade unions are trapped inside of in, in French society, in the French state, wherein – Fees go down, money goes down. Next contract bargaining season, uh, things are looking pretty pretty tough for the trade unions, and so you can see how you know, there there are pitfalls and traps everywhere. But I really am I'm 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 excited about this model of these users' councils. But I can see how fraught it would be, given the the rightly defensive posture of the left and and trade unions uh, from this you know thirty five forty year onslaught that that they've been facing that we've been suffering under. Um, it's something that we should think a lot about. I do wonder what, what, what's some of the pushback or feedback that you are getting from some of the trade unions and, and those types of people that you're in discussions with over these matters? I think in general, I think the trade unions are very interested and supportive of our proposals. I think they agree that citizens and users need to be part of this. So, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and, and all of this would need to happen in a context of proper funding for public services you know yeah, so it, right. it shouldn't the, be ticket, that it's right. you can't do this you know, conditions of austerity yeah exactly exactly like public ownership is you know we absolutely need it across the board but it's not going to be a panacea and it's not going to solve everything unless we fund our public services properly you know we don't want to be in a situation where we're paying far too much for our train fares you know and train staff aren't being paid properly you know and and it's a sort of scrabble for resources we need to recognize public services um, as being really important and, and fund them accordingly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's a good time to get into our current context here. The conjuncture that we're facing is this kind of profound uh, austerity, this profound era of austerity, wherein a lot of these managers who have been brought into these privatized public works are being compensated in, in, in really horrific ways. Uh, you had a very interesting interaction with a gentleman at one of, an event uh, it's posted up on your Twitter feed. Uh, I'm, I'm going to play this uh, for the audience, and I want to get your your response. On the um, on the civil society engagement point, I'm wondering. So I think Liz Garfield is your CEO. Liv Garfield. Yeah. Sorry, Liz yeah. Garfield, and she earns two and a half million pounds a year. Have you asked your customers how they feel about that? Uh, it, it, the, the, the chief execs of the listed companies clearly earn a lot of money, and I, you know you can debate whether you think that's value for money or not, and fine. But I suppose the question we get asked by our employees. So that was a, that was a very. <laughs> I love that clapback. That's what we in the states call a clapback. I don't know if that's made its way to, uh, to Britain or not, but uh, you really caught that guy with his pants down, so to speak. Uh, let's talk to me about who who was this gentleman? Um, why should uh, a CEO of a water company make a salary of 2.5 million pounds per year 
And what does that reveal about these privatization drives? Yes. So um, so that was at an event. It was a kind of PR company that invited us to an event. And what I hadn't quite realized when I said yes was that the event was going to be full of all of the private companies that we want to nationalize. Um, <laughs> and so uh, the guy who, who, who I spoke to is the head of government relations at Seven Trent Water Company, um, which uh, runs uh, one of the... Um, the, the water monopolies, um, one of the nine uh, privatized water monopolies in, in this country, in England. And their CEO is paid, uh, it's, I think it's around two million a year now. It's not actually quite as high as I, as I had said in the clip. Um, it's been reduced down, not as a direct oh, result guy. of my campaign, although they are under pressure. Poor guy. Um, How does he get by? How does he send his kids to the best schools? It's really, <laughs> it's really tragic anyway. Well, I mean, they're probably on they're probably on a lot more money than we are, but it it was um it was quite good fun. But I mean, basically, you know, they they were asking some questions. I wasn't supposed to be doing the questioning, so I kind of I kind of flipped flipped the uh, the script a little bit there because it it was a good opportunity. You know, I mean, when, normally they're not those companies would not be uh, would not be feeling that they need to hold themselves accountable to to our questioning. So so it was a nice chance. Mm-hmm. You really um, but you know, them on their back the foot, yeah. yeah, exactly. But the the water companies. Uh, you know, the behavior is just outrageous. So water was privatized um, in England in 1989. Um, and since then, they put up our bills by 40%. Uh, we've got leakage levels of 20 to 25%. That's water leaking away before it even reaches our houses um, at a time when, you know, we know that although we've got plenty of rain and water, you know, actually with the coming, you know, with the climate crisis and you know, water, water is not going to be as plentiful in the future. Um, we really ought to be conserving it. Um, I think most shockingly to me, they've really damaged our rivers. So only 14% of our rivers in England are meeting EU standards, um, which is just kind of disgusting. That I mean, they, these, these water companies, they don't want to invest in the infrastructure that would be needed in, in taking care of the environment, taking care of our rivers. Um, and so they just, you know, they just pour raw sewage into our rivers. Recently, um, Southern Water was fined a record fine um, because they've just been found out that they, that they poured raw sewage into the rivers and lied about it for seven years. Um, Yorkshire Water and United Utilities, um, two other water companies, in England actually went to the European Court of Justice to argue that they shouldn't have to be treated as public authorities, that they're private companies and shouldn't be treated that way. And therefore, they shouldn't have to tell us how much sewage they're putting in our rivers. Um, These are companies that we have no choice but to use. There is no consumer choice. Um, Thames Water is my water company. That's who I've got. Um, you know, there is no functioning market whatsoever. Um, so that's pretty shocking. And then um, to cap it all, um, these companies started out with zero debt in 1989. Um, they've since built up a debt mountain of £51 billion. Pounds. Um, so if and when we take them into public ownership, we'll have to deal with that debt and honour that debt. Um, so that's £51 billion. Pounds. But then they've extracted £56 billion pounds in dividends for shareholders. Wow. Um, So what that basically means is they've leveraged their natural monopoly position of being able to rip us all off on a consistent basis um, to extract huge amounts of profit. Um, And all of the investment that's gone into the water industry in the past 30 years could have been covered by our bills. That's astonishing. That's that's like these corporate raiders, these private equity raiders in the U.S., who who uh, join together, take up a bunch of loans and then buy a, a company like Toys R Us. 
rate it, leave it in yep. debt, take the profits and the fees and go home. Yeah. And, the, and then the, co- you know, the, the company goes under and the, and the workers lose their jobs, except this is happening at the public sector scale. That's, yeah. that's horrifying. Yeah. It is. It is horrifying. And I think it's completely outrageous. And I think they're starting to panic now um, because this is coming under more scrutiny. Um, you know, and and people when, when people learn these facts, you know, they're absolutely astonished and outraged. And, you know, four out of five of us think that water should be in public ownership. This is a basic it's a basic right. You know, it's something yeah, that we yeah. that we need every day. Let's, let's, I, I want to I get these numbers out for the audience because I'm, I'm 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 shocked by this cat. All right. 51 billion pounds in debt mm. and 56 billion pounds in dividends paid out. That's astonishing. Why is anyone getting paid dividends? Yeah. <laughs> dividends. <laughs> I mean, income is another thing. They need to make income, not 2.5 million pounds, mind you. But why, why are dividends being paid when the company is a net $4 billion in debt, the industry? I mean, this is. This well, is, yeah. So that's across those nine, right. across those nine companies. Across but yeah, exactly. Companies. I mean, they are. They're totally, um, you know, it's, it's it's financial games, and they're, and they're yeah. basically they're not they're not meaningfully, you know, water and sewerage companies. What they really are are, you know, financialized companies uh, with complex structures who are trying to extract as much profit as they possibly can from the public. That's astonishing. The industry's insolvent as a private entity, and they're they're taking home the profits uh, off off the backs of the public. It's it's really shocking. Pardon the interruption, everybody. I hope you're enjoying my interview with Kat Hobbs, talking about public ownership in the UK and the United States and beyond. But this is the part of the program where I ask you to join the 400-some-odd patrons of the Dead Pundit Society. While these episodes may be magically transported into your headphones for free on a weekly basis, they are not free to make. I rely on the generous contributions of my patrons in order to keep this project up and running And I need your support to be able to do that. So if you listen to these free episodes with any regularity once a week, every other week, once a month, if you've learned something from my program, if you think it's politically important and you want to keep it up and thriving and surviving in these hard times, in this capitalist climate that we're all sort of struggling through, I implore you, head over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. I'm really proud of everything we've done here on Dead Pundit Society over the past two and a half years, but I'm especially proud of this public ownership series. I've got a couple more episodes lined up before I officially call it a day, but it's been, I think, a really important contribution to the political discussion. It's a little ahead of the curve, I think. Not a whole lot of people in the United States are talking about public ownership, but I suspect in the next 12 months or so, it will be one of the hottest topics that the socialist left is discussing amongst amongst itself and amongst the broader uh, society that we're trying to reach. So get on board early, check out some of my guests over the past couple of weeks. And if you agree that this is important, as I do, uh, you'll become a patron today if you're financially able to do so, of course. Head over to patreon.com slash pundits in order to do that. Enough out of me. Back to this fabulous interview with Cat Hops. Enjoy. So We Own It is involved in many, many projects in various uh, various sectors of society from transit, railways, NHS, of course, energy system, various council service, care work, buses, water, which we've been talking about. What are some of the 
other projects that you're engaging in when it comes to broadening the participation in society and working towards this kind of um, robust democratic ownership society that we're all sort of working for in, in various directions. And I want to get back to this cooperative versus state ownership debate because this seems like a debate – uh, a, a family debate, a family feud, if you will, amongst people like ourselves who are interested in seeing the same kind of society. But now there's some really interesting and robust arguments about how to get there. So what are some of the other let's let's start with um, some of the other projects that we own it are taking up because you guys have your hands in, in a lot of things. We do. And we're a really small organization. Um, and what we I mean, what we really do is we run campaigns whenever we think we can help to uh, end a privatization or bring something into public ownership. So uh, we helped to uh, stop the privatization of the land registry um, a few years ago, which is the organization that tracks the uh, land ownership um, in England and Wales. Um, we, uh, we led the campaign to stop the privatization of NHS professionals, which is the NHS staffing body which the government was just going to sneakily, quietly privatise on the side. We more recently uh, campaigned to bring the East Coast Line into public ownership. So that's the line that goes from London to Edinburgh. And what the government's have essentially done there is bailed out the private companies involved when they couldn't actually make the profits they'd promised to return to the government. So that was Richard Branson, um, everybody's favourite entrepreneur, not, um, yeah. uh, and Stagecoach, who, who were running, running that line, um, and the government. The, the Elon Musk of, uh, of the UK, for <laughs> those who may not have the proper amount of bile coming up in their throats uh, at the, at the yeah. <laughs> upon hearing that name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I mean, Richard Branson talks a lot about being an entrepreneur, but it's interesting because, you know, contracts like, you know, the rail franchises, they're very much not about being an innovative swashbuckling entrepreneur taking risk. And in fact, what we saw with the East Coast line is that when the risk gets too high and they're not making the money they promised, they basically go cap in hand to government and say, oh, sorry, actually, can you bail us out? We're not, you know, we're not going to be able to deliver. Um, so, you know, they're not really that interested in risk. Uh, never mind how he's how he started out. But so that line is now in public ownership. Um, and, and that line has been um, brought into public ownership three times now over over a number of years because the private companies keep failing um, to deliver what they've promised on that line. And then uh, more recently, we this this uh, a few months ago, we campaigned to bring the probation service into public ownership alongside um, a number of unions and others. Um, and uh, we're really happy that that service has come back into public hands because that's probation staff are the people who are obviously looking after people when they get out of prison, making sure they get rehabilitated back into society, um, making sure they can access housing and jobs um, and that their families are supported and that the victims of crime are supported. Um, it's really skilled work. It's really important work. Um, and what happened is that it was privatized in 2014, 2015, and the private sector has made a complete hash of it. Um, and so it's it's really, really a good result that it's now come back into public ownership. So so really a, a key thing that we're doing is is looking out for all those opportunities where we can keep pushing, you know, keep pushing for public ownership whenever we get the chance. But then we're also preparing for, you know, what a Labour government might look like, because this is, you know, this is the exciting thing on the table. So when I started We Own It back in 2013, I had no idea how we were going to get anywhere near public ownership. And then in 2017, when Corbyn and McDonnell came along with their manifesto 
promising public ownership of water, energy, rail, and Royal Mail, we were really, really excited. That was probably um, a pretty good day for you, I would say. It was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I mean, it's an utter game changer. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and this is now a conversation that that people are having, not just on the left, but you know, you know, in the Financial Times, you know, in 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 much of the media, and in and you know, we now have investors wanting to talk to us because they want us to, you know, tell us how they're how they're going to fare if, if and when we get a Labour government. Um, so, so yeah, so now that's, that's really exciting. And, and so that's why we're doing this thinking about, about what public ownership should look like. So the report that we've written, we are, um, we're hoping that that will influence Labour policy. We've also just released what we called a people's plan for water, um, which is something quite participatory. So we, um, we went out to the public and said, uh, you know, tell us what you want um, from your water system. Um, people came back with their ideas and we sort of collected them in a little pamphlet and have shared that with MPs to tell people, you know, this is, this is what the public wants to see, which is quite exciting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a kind of trio of of, of tactics and, and bright spots here that I'm noting. The first thing here is something that I've been talking about on, on DPS since I started uh, almost three years ago now is this importance of getting into the state. <laughs> and, it, you know, the, 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 these left governments that are getting into the state or challenging for state power are, are, are seldom perfect. In fact, never perfect. They're guaranteed to not be perfect. But what they do do is they open up a whole host of, of possibilities and, and capacities that were unavailable prior to, to their rise. The second thing that I notice is that what you're trying to do is, is build um, a certain amount of awareness. A lot of the stuff goes on, these privatizations, these austerity projects, go, goes on behind the backs of normal citizens. And, and so, you know, raising that awareness. But the third thing, which is the most promising, is that it seems that when you raise these these scams, these schemes to public attention, there's a tremendous outcry almost every time because the, you know, the, um, the mendacity is, is so mm. obvious, uh, if, if people would only know the, 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 the severity of these things. Um, I think yeah. that's the, 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 it's, it's, we should take a lot of, we should take heart in that. I think. I think so. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, um, I think, you know, what's really exciting about public ownership is, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, it's a radical game changer that would start to help to create a more democratic economy, you know, that could give us a sense of what participation means, of real accountability, of, you know, taking back control in the in the Brexit language, whichever side of the debate you fall on. You know, but at the same time, public ownership is just common sense. You know, what we're actually talking about is a mixed economy where you have public services that we all use and pay for and often work in, you know, being provided for people rather than profit. And, you know, to most people in the UK, that is an absolute no brainer, you know, and that was that was an inspiration for starting We Own It in the first place. And it's, you know, it's remained true. And if anything, it's increased. But it's been the case for the last 30 years, actually, you know, 30 to 40 years through the whole privatization experiment, you know, that that has been a really ideological extreme experiment of saying, you know, let's take these most basic services and hand them over to private companies. Let's create markets where markets, you know, were never supposed to belong and see what happens. You know, that's what that's what Thatcher and her her cohort did. Um, and it was unpopular then and it's unpopular now. And so when we start to point out, you know, 
the government's privatizing this or outsourcing that or, you know, whenever campaigns, there's all, all kinds of campaigns going on. You know, there's, there's a lot of public support for public ownership and insourcing. And actually, um, the, there was polling done by a right wing think tank on this, the Legatum Institute, which I'm not sure what they were expecting or hoping for. But, you know, the polling shows <laughs> own goal. Eighty sure. percent of us want. Sorry. Probably not an own goal, probably, I would, I would guess. Uh, no, I mean, it was, it was, I guess maybe they were just genuinely curious about attitudes, but they asked about a range of public services. And so, yeah, 83% of us want public ownership of water. It's 77% for energy, 76% for rail. And if you look at other stats, you know, it's 67% want our post service to be publicly owned, 84% for the NHS. You know, we, we talk about these stats all the time because, you know, what they show is even amongst conservatives in this country, People just don't think that privatization makes much sense because it, it really doesn't. You know. The neoliberals are now in the Brechtian position of uh, needing to dissolve the people and elect another, much yes. like much like the state communists were, um, you know, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s when their 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 project was dissolving ideologically and materially. That's that's heartening. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are uh, going to see the collapse of these neoliberal zombie regimes. They they somehow managed to march on despite public opinion being in our favor. So this is where their strategies to turn this thing around become really essential. And we're in a really pivotal moment right now in in, in human history where anything is possible on, in one sense, but in another sense, um, you know, the odds are certainly stacked up against us. Let's get to in this, in our final moments here, let's get to this debate. Again, it's a family feud. It sounds this debate between, or I would only say debate. It seems to be a discussion around the right balance of cooperative ownership versus more kind of traditional managerial state ownership. And this is something that's it's, it's really an open question on this show, on DPS, something that I'm trying to work through with the variety of guests that I've had on who are arguing in various directions. I had up until very recently been somewhat cool over the notion of cooperatives. Cooperatives in the United States, the way that they are sort of transmitted in, in, in the, the kind of the ethos, the spirit, the idiom of, of the left is typically anarchist, typically anarchist. It has very little uh, role for the state. It's, it uh, wants to decentralize power in a way, in my estimation, that would undermine our ability to carry out these bold and massive projects that are going to be required to remake society. And by the way, stave off, you know, cataclysmic uh, climate change as well. That's, that's the big one. And yet they, these sort of inspiring cooperative movements, say the Preston model in Britain and other, uh, other people who are pushing these cooperatives in the United States in really innovative and exciting ways, it sort of opened my eyes. It's opened my eyes a bit to the promise of cooperatives. What is this balance that you would like to see achieved between sort of state managerial ownership and cooperative ownership? And feel free to qualify any of the uh, claims that I've made previously. Mm, yeah, it's really interesting. So I think, um, you know, I, I think cooperatives are fantastic. You know, I think we need many, many more of them in the economy. What we're trying to do with We Own It is make the case for public services as, you know, as a key sector of the economy and, and that public ownership 
looks a bit different from from other models. So, you know, let's have more cooperatives, you know, for example, in our food system. You know, we've got vast uh, multinational organisations, supermarkets managing how we deliver food. You know, many, many of them could surely be worker or user co-ops and that would get us better outcomes, you know, in terms of sustainability. You know, there's companies, um, you know, multinational corporations on our high streets, which are often dodging tax. You know, obviously, it's none of this is straightforward. But if we took some of them into cooperative ownership, maybe we could be doing some really interesting, important work to, you know, to make them more genuinely accountable to the public and um, improve, you know, the way that they operate. Um, but I think public services are something slightly different, you know, so and we can't we can't do without public services. So, you know, if you have a co-op running your water supply, for example, and it and it fails, you know, maybe because it's given a big dividend to consumers or to workers or, or both and it's made some wrong call. You know, who's going to step in? The state is going to step in because water is not an optional extra. Water is a vital service. And so we you know we need we need the state we also need the state as you say you know to tackle challenges like like the climate crisis you know that needs planning you know that that doesn't mean we plan the whole economy but we plan bits of it because we actually do need to deliver on a green new deal and we need to deliver really fast and then of course you know the state it's you know it's not it's not perfect it's never going to be perfect but the state has the potential to represent a broader group of people and to make sure that marginalized voices are included, to make sure that future generations are included. You know, we need to build that in, um, but the potential is there. And so I think, you know, we definitely don't want to have models that are too managerial and top down. We need to make sure that we're accessing all of the collective intelligence of, you know, people who work in public services and people who use them, which is huge. Um, And we need that collective intelligence to, to tackle challenges. But if we if we sort of hold that within a more democratic, accountable state um, and make sure that we've got mechanisms, you know, so that we can, so that there isn't too much power hoarding. You know, we we can have a, you know, a strong organisation of, of public service users, for example, holding the state to account for how it delivers. Then we've got some real potential there to solve some problems together. Um, and I think, you know, if you if you took away all the public services and, and replaced them with lots of local co-ops, I, you know, I don't think that would answer a lot of the, the problems that we that we have to solve. Um, so I'd love to see many, many more co-ops in the rest of the economy. And I think, you know, there's so many exciting things to be done there. Um, but but that to me is, you know, what a mixed economy looks like. It needs a strong public sector. And, you know, the research shows that too, you know, public services are a really vital backbone for the for the rest of the economy. So let's have them, let's have co-ops and let's encroach a bit on, you know, private sector territory instead of, you know, scrabbling and fighting over over natural monopolies. My guest last week made an inspired, if not controversial, argument in favor of uh, these sort of large planned economies. That's Lee Phillips. He was talking about uh, the Green New Deal. He also has a book out called The People's Republic of Walmart, probably heard of and my my, my, uh, audience has heard much about talking about the importance of planning and yet understanding, of course, that these these things are very fraught. Uh, It's difficult to introduce large possibly managerial, possibly bureaucratic in some senses in terms of having various layers of expertise and accountability that would be required to carry out these large ambitious projects. And so you can see on the one hand, even though I I, I agree with what you've just put forward and I very much agree with what Lee Phillips is arguing with respect to the Green New Deal, with respect to we shouldn't just always be knee-jerk, kind of uh, small is beautiful 
decentralization is is the answer to every question, right? These are these are kind of knee jerk reactions in some sectors of the left that I think we should really rethink. And yet their objections to these large kind of expert bureaucratic, potentially bureaucratic models are are things that we we all should also should take very seriously ourselves. It's my understanding that you've thought quite a bit about some of the impasses of um, the needs to have various layers of accountability. And yes, even managers and certainly experts. Uh, we can't all be, um, you know, I don't know, nuclear physicists or what, what have you. We, we do have various divisions of labor and expertise in our society. So how do we bring them to account in, in your vision? So I think it's about sharing out the power more. So it's about giving real power you know, in the governance structures to, you know, users, workers, communities. Um, but also it's about, you know, having organizations like this new organization we're proposing participate, which, you know, which has statutory powers, which is separate from government, which is independent from government. You know, it's, it's potentially quite a challenging idea, but it's the right one because we don't want to have too much power in one place, I think. So, and, you know, and then also there's a whole important piece about, you know, what do we want publicly owned companies and our, and our government to deliver? And so we've suggested a range of duties as well that, that they would have to deliver on um, in terms of a duty to decarbonize, uh, a duty to provide access to services, um, a duty to steward public land and assets and not sell off any public land or assets unless they're buying something of equal value and a duty to work really closely with communities. And so they would have that kind of public mission, which is very different from the kinds of missions that you get um, in private sector organizations or in the kind of contracts that the government arranges with the private sector. And, and all of that would mean a different kind of approach, I think. But also, you know, alongside that, there's so much best practice out there about what works. And so I, I think that's why we shouldn't be too, um, we should be, we should try to see what's working in lots of different countries across the world, you know, and in our own countries and, you know, and, and make sure we're getting the balance right in terms of all the different things we want public ownership to achieve. Uh, so, you know, we, we can look at what they're doing in Paris on water and we can look at what they're doing in Scotland on water. And those are both great examples um, that we can learn from when we're working out what the solution would be here in England. You know, and, and if, if America decided to, to copy, you know, more of an NHS style model, you know, there would be stuff to learn from us and stuff to learn from other countries as well. So I think having that evidence base as we assess options and as we try to distribute power as well as enable planning, if we can bring all that together, then that could be quite powerful. And, you know, it, it's not about, you know, which we always end up saying in interviews, you know, this is not about going back anywhere you know we want to build on all of the successes that we've had in the past but this isn't going back to the 70s this is about you know the new challenges that we've got on our plate you know the climate crisis you know all of the all of the challenges the environmental challenges huge rising inequality we, we need to be able to tackle those with all of the intelligence that we've got between us and and be as smart as possible about how we do it one of the most exciting aspects of this movement for public ownership is the way that it is – I started to say – I wrote – scribbled down a little note and said ideologically neutral? Question <laughs> mark. Of course, nothing is ideologically <laughs> neutral. That's absolutely impossible. We're in a larger capitalist context and and uh, I, we do not subscribe to the end of ideology here on DPS, just to be clear. But I think what <laughs> to be more precise, what public ownership does is it transcend, it transcends – the existing 
ways, the existing battle lines, the exist, certainly the existing culture wars, which is why you'll notice we only talk, we only mentioned Brexit once and it was kind of uh, in passing and really uh, in jest uh, because, you know, who needs to get bogged down in the culture war and the, and the topic, the flavor of the, of the week on, on, you know, sort of, you know, not only the mainstream press, but also these kind of intra-left disputes that sort of ebb and flow and come and go. We never seem to learn the lessons from it. But anyway, I digress. Uh, but public ownership transcends those traditional divides, those battle lines and brings – it has the potential anyway to bring a, a wide variety of people together um, under under the same umbrella to work towards the same mission. And that's what I think is so – um, inspiring for me, which is why I've sort of taken it up in earnest on, on this show. Do you think that's correct? Do you think there's something kind of uh, really innovative going on here? Certainly there's a, a, a longer history of this tradition in Britain. Yeah. How, how do you see this playing out? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, and like you say, I think it does have the potential to unite people. We did some polling um, a little while ago, actually looking at you know, whether people want to leave the European Union or they, you know, not to bring Brexit into it too much, but, you know, whether they're leavers or remainers, you know, how do they feel about public ownership? And actually, there's very similar levels of support for public ownership across those groups of people. And, you know, and there is that sense of, you know, it, it's it's common sense. It's something we can get on with. You know, it's and, and like I say, it's, you know, in a sense, it's not even that radical. And, and I think, you know, I think that's why... Um, why the media is kind of genuinely scared of it and why investors are genuinely scared because they can see actually this is, you know, people people really do want this and this is very positive. And it's really something I like about it is it's, you know, it's it's great to be campaigning for something positive. You know, there's so many problems in the world um, and, and it can be difficult to keep campaigning. But, you know, to have an actual solution, to put it forward, to talk about, you know, why it's right, what it could deliver, I think we really need to have that kind of vision um, that we're that we're working towards that, you know, that's really important for inspiring people. Last question. How can people get involved? You're speaking to an international audience, uh, depending on the month and the topics that I cover on the show. It's anywhere between two thirds to 70 percent United States or also North and South America, I should say. But I have a 25 percent UK European contingent as well. Big Big uh, contingent in Denmark. I like to shout out my Denmark audience whenever possible because I love them so much. But uh, <laughs> so first and foremost, talk to your talk to your your country people, if you will, to spare if you'll spare me the nationalistic uh, sort of jive there. Uh, talk to people in the UK and in, in Britain and and how they can yeah. get involved and we own it. And then maybe also then transcend you know the sort of national framework and and talk to my audience internationally to talk about maybe yeah. kind of giving them some ideas and some inspiration on, on what to do. Yeah, fantastic. So um, if you're in the UK, please do visit our website, weownit.org.uk and sign up. Um, we need you in order to win campaigns. And if you sign up, you'll be helping to win campaigns um, and getting ready for hopefully, hopefully a Labour government that will deliver some of this stuff and we can make sure that they do it right um, and that we hold them accountable. If yeah, if you're international, if you're an international audience, I mean, so just a, a side note on on Denmark, we're always uh, we're always talking about how great Denmark is as well. Um, Denmark is responsible for a huge proportion of our offshore wind power with their publicly owned company Dong. So we'd love to have something similar in the UK. Only I think it's 0.7 percent of our um, offshore wind is both UK and publicly owned in this country, which is a, a terrible 
<laughs> terrible kind of record. Yeah, it'd be great to have much, a lot, much a more. A lot of because, coasts there too. You think there'd be promise? Hey, if you're if you're in Denmark and you're working on those projects, reach out the cat if you have some connections. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Let's get you on video telling us telling us what to do here, um, so we can get on with it. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's an international battle, isn't it? And the you know sadly some of the ideas of of um, you know Thatcher and Reagan have been have been traveling all over the globe, and you know apologies for our part in that um it's you know it's it's i think it's it's really exciting if if we can be sharing examples all across the world of you know what public ownership looks like how we can have strong public services that are working for everyone um there's some really exciting work um in that regard being done by the transnational institute who are tracking you know cities hundreds of cities all over the world uh taking public services back there's you know, such an exciting movement around that. So yeah, do check out their work. Um, but please do also, if you're anywhere in the world, please come to our website, weownit.org.uk and sign up to our mailing list or follow us on social media. Um, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We've got some great videos on YouTube. Um, and if, if anyone has, you know, five pounds a month to donate, that would be very, very gratefully received. We're a small organization punching above our weight. We've got five people and it's it's been something that I've built up from scratch. So you can imagine we don't get a huge amount of well, we're not a charity, so we don't get any charitable funding. <laughs> yeah. um, we don't get any funding from government. So we obviously don't get any funding from corporations. So uh, so it is a struggle, um, and we're doing a huge amount. And if you're if you're part of it, we can potentially make this really really big. But yeah, if you've got money or not, please sign up for the campaign mailing list because you know we're we're really on the cusp of some big victories here i think and if we had a country like england you know taking its water into public ownership you know it might, it might not sound that radical from a u.s perspective where i know a lot of your utilities are already public or cooperatively owned but you know it's it is it does send a message i think about you know actually this this whole privatization experiment of the last 40 years you know it's failed it's over we're doing something new and that's really exciting yeah, time to step aside, privatizers. It's our turn. Exactly, exactly. Your time is up. <laughs> if nothing else, I have to tell you just in closing, I want to co-sign. People should check out uh, We Own It on Twitter and Cat's uh, feed as well and YouTube because the thing that I like the most when I watch you and uh, the people in your cohort over there is just the optimism and the certainty with which you speak. Just looking into the camera and saying, hey, privatizers. Step aside. Your time is up. It's our turn now. With a certain sense, you know, the, the confidence and is something that uh, that is not lost on me here in the United States, where we kind of, yeah, we shout and we scream and we make placards, but do we really mean it? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we're just kind of hoping to be heard and not really expecting to be listened to. But uh, you, you folks over there are are making some strident demands, and and the people in power have every reason to be fearful. And it's really exciting. Kat Hobbs, founder and director of We Own It. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And that concludes today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks to Kat Hobbs for that really fascinating interview about what's going on in the United Kingdom when it comes to trying to democratize the economy and particularly our public services. Next week, we're going to be marching on with this public ownership theme. I've got Thomas Hanna lined up. He is the author of Commonwealth, a book about public ownership, the history, future, past, and present of public ownership in the United States, of all places. 
He is the research director at the Democracy Collaborative in Washington, D.C., and I've got him lined up. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good one. Uh, you guys might be surprised that public ownership has a robust legacy in the United States of all places. Really fascinating stuff. Anyway, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, we can't do this without the generous support of our patrons. So head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a member today in order to keep this project up and running and thriving. I think we're doing really important work, but we definitely cannot do it without your generous support. In addition to receiving all of the warm and fuzzies from supporting DPS Media, you'll get access to our weekly B-sides as well. We save the hottest hot takes for our patrons on a weekly basis. If you enjoy DPS, you will really enjoy the B-sides. So don't miss out on that. Patreon.com slash Pundits. Until next week, Dead Pundit, out. <laughs>